Welcome to Pop and Lock. I'm Natalie Dowzicki. And I'm Landry Ayers. Twelve mysterious spacecraft with alien life forms on board land on Earth, and a linguist saves humanity. But Dennis Villeneuve's 2016 hit Arrival isn't just another alien movie. Here to discuss the true art of language is film critic and senior culture reporter at Vox, Alyssa Wilkinson. Hello. And the host of Right Now on Rightly and author of the forthcoming book, How the Force Can Fix the World, Stephen Kent. Hey, nice to be here again. One of the central tensions of Arrival is between this sort of descriptivist scientific viewpoint of Jeremy Renner's character, this sort of utilitarian military point of view, and Dr. Banks, who is this sort of, I, I guess you could say relativist or, or maybe constructivist idea. It's, it's, it's vague enough that a lot of labels could work here, but there is distinct viewpoints that all of these characters are coming at this issue of the heptapod's arrival from. So how does this movie deal with the question of whether or not we are all experiencing this same reality? How are we dealing with all three of these or possibly even more perspectives? Yeah, I mean, I can. I think one of the things that struck me most when I first saw this movie, so I had just finished talking um, a little bit about theories of language and language shaping reality with my undergrads. And I was like very excited as soon as I started watching the movie and thought, oh my goodness, I know what this movie is doing. Um, but in the years since um, that I've that I've watched it over and over, I'm sure we'll talk a lot about that. But in the years since, I think um, what I've come to realize is, of course, there is like a linguistic hypothesis happening in this film. Um, but it also is more fundamentally, I think, about metaphors, um, which are really important to language, and we know that, um, and how metaphors change the way that we think about the realities that we're encountering um, together. So, you know, the the way, the kind of the framework that we push situations through uh, has a lot of, it, it does a lot to determine how we're going to interact with them and thus shape our own realities. So if I understand all of our relational uh, interactions as being transactional and you understand them as being something else, then we're going to have a different perspective of what our relationship is. And I think that part is really important for looking at these characters and the way they're encountering the world, but also more broadly, this is a little bit of a film about geopolitics and it's encountering it from that direction. And the whole the whole aspect of perspectives in this movie is something that I have been coming at from a little bit of a different angle just because I, I watched this movie again for the second time yesterday in preparation for recording this. And I just finished writing the last chapter of my book, um, and it's on free will and choice. And in all of the reading that I, I dove into on the concept of free will versus determinism, um, which I, I'm never good at describing makes these things, but like basically, you know, are things set to happen a certain way? Are we on a trajectory, sort of like a treadmill in life? One of the most interesting things that I came across there was that the whole concept of free will and determinism is tied to how we are told to see the world and to see ourselves and all of the different possible outcomes that we can face in life. And when this movie started framing language as the way that you see the world and the way that it sort of like governs your ability to think in different ways, I went, 
that's exactly what I was writing about, which was just your range of experiences and who people tell you you are over the course of your life has a huge role in determining who you become and the different options that you can pursue down the road, or at least your perception of those options. So I just watched this movie and like I thought this was a big commentary on free will, which I was not expecting. And I think that that's how the movie sort of ends as well with like, you know, um, the, the main character, Louise, knowing that her daughter is going to die and it driving her, her family apart and wrecking her marriage. It's funny that you you bring that up, Stephen, because I've, I've seen this movie like probably three or four times now. And in from from my memory, I was thinking, you know, oh, this language or this language, this film is largely like about language and like, you know, the power of language and like the different things you can uh, people gleam from reality um, through language. And then when I was watching it this time, like most recently within the last week or so, I, I watched it, I guess, from a much more like meta level of like how language is like tied to free will and determinism like you were talking about. And I think there's this, this like idea that like our obviously throughout the film and like for those of you who haven't seen it we get like little tidbits in the beginning of um dr uh, banks's who we perceive is her um daughter and her daughter she her daughter passes away from a i don't think they ever say exactly what she had um passes away from a, an uncurable disease and we learn that pretty early on and most viewers assume that that has happened in the past um so like just the way like you know the film the film presents it but then as we are going through the film with uh dr banks who's actually amy adams which i think is a very interesting cast casting choice in this sense uh just because i'm i'm not really used to her in this type of role um but as we go through the film we actually learn that that hasn't the what we had seen about her daughter hasn't yet happened um and that's like kind of like the big plot twist i mean i spoiler alert but this movie came out quite a few years ago so i don't feel all that bad about it um but um it's really interesting the ongoing conversation like from a meta level like not only how language ties into it but this idea of like our lives being predetermined um and I think it all, like Stephen said, comes to a head at the, the very end of the movie when they're asking um, where Jeremy Renner and Amy Adams are having this conversation. And they're asking very um, philosophical questions about, you know, what would you still like live your life if you knew how it was going to end or you knew what was happening yet next or you knew someone was going to be in pain from something that you did in the future. Um, and I I thought it was a kind of a brilliant way to frame a sci-fi movie um because that's why i wanted to say it's not like your typical alien <laughs> alien movie it's not mars attacks it's not independence day um it has a, a lot more philosophical meaning to it than those than those films <laughs> yeah i would say it's it's right up there with kind of uh, uh natalie portman in annihilation in terms of the sort of big weighty topics that it's taking on in the context of sort of an extraterrestrial supernatural event and one of the the favorite things I, I like about this movie, it's just metaphors just rolled inside metaphors. And when you get to the end of the movie, you finally learn the name of the daughter and her name is Hannah. And that is a palindrome. And the whole point is that it reads the same way forward and the same way backwards. And you can think then about the movie once you've reached the finish line, how it all can be read the same both ways. Because like in the very beginning of the movie, you think 
uh, Louise, Amy Adams, lost her daughter and, and was going through a divorce. And frankly, she's just like, she's sad. She just looks really sad. She's going into class, very humdrum. The news is breaking that aliens have landed and she just like walks to her car like nothing is going on and panic is sort of starting to break out and she goes to bed at night just like with the news on and she's able to sleep. It's like she doesn't, (laughs) it's like it doesn't affect her. And so when I first saw the movie and I actually forgot when I was watching it the second time, I made a little note, which was Amy has nothing to left to live for (laughs) because I thought she had like lost her marriage and her child. And then I got to the end. I was like, oh, so she was in the beginning. She was just kind of a depressed person anyways. Um, it changes the entire way that you see the movie, but it's also it also changes nothing. <laughs> and I think that is really interesting because it speaks to the, you know, the mechanics of the heptapod language, which becomes a, a big plot device and sort of leads into the sort of deus ex machina for, you know, resolving the the big um, climactic moment where war is imminent. Because you've got the the language where it is written all simultaneously, like like they said, if you could write your language with both hands, you would start at the ends, but you have to know where it ends and where it starts and bring them together at the same point. And I, I thought this was actually really interesting as well, um, is that Ted Chang, who wrote the short story that this is based on, which is called Story of Your Life, um, in an interview about uh, sort of his writing process, he had written that his usual process is to start with an ending scene. And then he will start the first scene and then he will sort of fill in the gaps between the two of them. So the fact that he was able to sort of take that method and, and embed it. And you think often that like stories are always written that way. Yeah, like your perception is often that stories are always written with an ending in mind, and then you're working your way towards that. Like just just recently, like J.J. Abrams was talking about what went wrong with the Star Wars final trilogy, and like, oh, I oh, wish yeah. we kind of known where we were going and <laughs> and had a had a plan. And you often think that this is the way it always works. But when you are writing a story or a book, you need to know what is the synopsis of this story so then you can help finish and write out all of those details. And I was thinking when they described that scene of like writing from the front and the back, it's my number one problem when I am writing on paper. And I'm really glad that we don't have to like ever write on paper anymore these days because I just would always run out of room. And when I'm writing a birthday card to somebody, I always end up having to cram stuff in those final lines because I have no sense of what I'm going to say and how I'm going to say it. I just go. And it kind of breaks your mind when you think about the way that they constructed sentences in this circle as a completely fleshed out thought. I absolutely love it. Well, I think one fun challenge with this story is that it did start out as a short story and then has been translated to a medium that's, um, you know, so obviously narrative and uh, narrative literature and fil- narrative films are both linear. We start at the beginning and we have a perception of what we're looking at as being the beginning of the story. Or maybe we're like, oh, it's the middle and it tells us four days earlier or something like that, like they love to do on on television these days. But one thing that I think is challenging about this is that in film, the filmmaker has even more control over the pace and this kind of the perception you have of the story. Um, they, you know, they... Their 
you can read slower or faster. You can't really do that with a film. I guess you could speed up or slow down, but that's psychotic behavior. Don't do that to a movie. <laughs> um, but if you're watching a movie that way, we also, I mean, obviously I was thinking about this the fourth time I saw it because I'm a, I'm a film critic. And, um, you know, one, one thing that film has taught us over a hundred and some years is that generally we're watching the beginning of a story. And then as the movie goes along in time and we go along in time, literally sitting on our couch for two hours, that time is progressing forwards. Um, and filmmakers have been breaking this perception of chronological time movement in film, you know, throughout film history. Certainly different people have done it in different ways. We've gotten used to nonlinear stories. We've got Pulp Fiction and we've got Memento and we've got all these films that uh, mess with that. But still, our our general mode of interacting with film is to think of it as a metaphor for time passing. It's like a structural metaphor that we're experiencing. And we know time isn't actually passing at the same rate, but that's the experience we're having. And so one thing I love about Arrival is it even on that meta level breaks that um, and says, you know, I can remember the distinct moment at which I realized what was going on with the perception of time. I felt like my own brain had suddenly bent into a circle. <laughs> I was like, oh, oh my goodness, you know, and it wasn't just like, I was like, what a neat trick they did, but it was actually my own perception suddenly um, bending back on itself. Uh, and for a split second, I understood what it might be like to understand how to perceive language the way the heptapods do in these circles. Um, one thing I want to say that always amuses me is that the language, um, they were having a lot of trouble figuring out how to design the language, um, the heptapod language. And apparently it's, it's, literally molded after like a coffee stain yeah <laughs> that, that <laughs> makes total sense right? when you look at it with mm -hmm. that context um it tells you a lot about how how that would be but you know it's a again there's all this extra stuff going on in this movie that you wouldn't necessarily have in a narrative story and that way we're even experiencing language slightly differently because now we have a visual language and we have all this extra stuff that we're contending with um and something you know that we were saying before is that this isn't a sci-fi movie where it isn't a sci-fi movie ultimately where the aliens are attacking, but we are attuned as is everyone else in the world of the movie to think that's what's happening because that's the language we have for aliens arriving on, you know, on our planet. Um, and that's the language we have for watching disasters happen on TV. So I think there's a lot of that that's even being played with uh, way below the surface. And that gets brought up specifically because Everyone is trying to communicate with the heptapods, but they, they are all coming at it from different angles and using their own respective languages to sort of understand where the heptapods are coming from. And it becomes a major plot point specifically when the Chinese military and government they discover or assume has been using the game of Mahjong to sort of communicate with the heptapods um, and the uh, the American scientists and military believe that this is dangerous because it is ultimately competition and, and sort of a power dynamic and a struggle between two sides and it will lead to conflict, um, which I thought was interesting and, and is certainly a, a, a sort of understandable conclusion that you could get to. But it is also 
I I wonder if it's an assumption about the way that games are played and are perceived in that there is a, a struggle uh, and there's sort of an inherent violence or conflict as opposed to what games have been historically, which is people coming together to think creatively and do things differently. Now, and I don't know if it's necessarily uh, intrinsic to the format of games. Now, conflict in and of itself, I think, is a part of of human nature and we talk about competition and, and and predatory behaviors i don't think you can ignore the possibility of those but i did think it was interesting that they framed it in that way um and and something that natalie had written about was like why did why were the chinese military like, like they were why very them? much singled out yeah. <laughs> and and i think part of it might be playing off of like you know we had uh, you know, Cold War fears and films where Russia was always the evil villain sort of pulling the strings and doing, you know, crazy experiments and not understanding the dangers of the technology that they were trying to to sort of deal with and understand. And there's probably a lot of cultural baggage that is bound up in fear of China currently. Um, and, and I think that's definitely being played into here. Well, watching it, watching that movie post COVID is an entirely different experience. Just when you have had two years to sort of stew on Chinese secrets and the way that they, they play, they play with the truth uh, and obscure their activities from the public. But like all of those things that happen in that movie are based off of failures of mutual cooperation and just lack of trust and language between people here on earth. And like, you know, the world that we live in uh, suffers from our inability to sense that we are all tied together and have things to gain. And you were talking about how they were they were teaching, you know, or trying to communicate with the Chinese with a game, and, and that sort of made U.S. generals nervous. And somebody mentioned chess, um, like how, you know, how would you talk to them if you're playing a game where there's like a winner and a loser? And the daughter later on asks the mom about a scientific or, or sciencey name for a game where both sides win. She says that it's not compromise. And then they come back with um, the title of a non-zero sum game. I had actually never heard the term zero sum game until you know, listening to the Ezra Klein show because he mm-hmm. used that term like all of the time yeah. <laughs> to describe <laughs> politics. It's one of his favorite expressions. And, uh, and so I was like, oh, you know what? I actually disagree with that analysis a bit because chess is like there is a winner and a loser, but the actions throughout a chess game are not zero sum. You can trade up pieces, trade down pieces. There are situations where you can make a decision to like have both sides lose a piece, but then one still comes out on top or it's an equal. Like there are so many different ways to express power. Um, and conquest in a chess game. And I was like, I actually don't know if that is right. Um, but I, I well, suppose I, in the end, it's conflict. Yeah. I mean, the whole idea is that it's still zero sum in the sense that someone wins and someone does not. Although I guess there's such a thing as a draw in chess. <laughs> so maybe, but even then, you know, you can win a chess tournament, right? You, like someone win, wins. Um, but I do think, you know, like watching all of that, I thought a lot about the concept of language games and the idea that whether we're speaking or communicating in different ways, you know, we we don't have these like set and closed systems that are established that we arrive into and they never change. They're always evolving. 
they're always changing. You know, games might be the most set, but also there's like other ways to play chess and there's new rules that get added. I, I've i been like relearning how to play chess and discovering, oh, this rule was added in like 1816. <laughs> yeah. like, what? Ch- pawns you know, but- moving up two spaces at the beginning is like a recent exactly. invention. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, and that happens in sports. I watch baseball and, you know, Major League Baseball is always changing the rules a little bit to make the game more interesting. And, you know, so they they develop within a, a specific community um, that is trying to accomplish certain goals. And I think that's what is kind of so interesting about this film is how well it recognizes that and how well it recognizes that, um, you know, I, w- I wish I could remember the citation for this, but I was reading something years ago that was saying, you know, um, science, <laughs> like just science, kind of developed in European languages. And because of that, it has certain characteristics and certain ways of treating things that might have been different had it developed in a different kind of a language, one that, you know, that conceived of time and space differently or something like that. Um or, you know, the fact that some languages can uh, conceive of numbers, uh, and I, I'm using language in kind of a large sense here, not just literal words, um, con- conceive of numbers in like log- logarithmic ways while we think of them as sort of one, one, one integers. And all of that is always very fascinating to me. And of course, philosophers of language have been talking about it for a long time um, and recognizing that mahjong or chess would be a different way to talk and have a different end goal is really just a recognition that there are rules that govern that um, those interactions that are set that may evolve, but they're not the same as like the language you have that maybe when you speak with your child, you hope, although <laughs> maybe that's a zero sum game too. Sometimes <laughs> um, it did make me think a lot though about um, I had just watched it last year, kind of when the pandemic was starting and I, um, I, I was like, you know what book this reminds me of is um, World War Z, Max Brooks' book, um, which is sort of similar in some ways. It's It posits like, what if a zombie apocalypse actually happened? How would different uh, countries and communities respond to it? And, you know, what w- would they literally do based on their understanding of the world? Um, and I, I have talked to Max about it a couple of times since then. And he's like, well, <laughs> I was right about a lot of things. I kind of wish I hadn't been, but just, you know, proclivities that are kind of built into the way we communicate with one another affect the way we interact with the real world and give us a set of rules for interaction that can be hard to break out of on our own. Yeah. And we, we've been hearing about some of this like subjectivity versus, um, I don't know. I won't say fact, but subjectivity versus the opposite in popular news these days. Like, you know, anytime I turn on Fox News, it seems like they are talking about how some California school district is trying to get rid of the rules of math because it is rooted in, you know, European practices and white supremacy. I don't know. Like, I, I never get like the good coverage on these kind of stories that I would like because I would really like to understand where some of these, <laughs> these discourses are actually stemming from. But it is exactly what this movie and, and this conversation is getting at, which is like, like, why does one plus one have to equal this thing called two? And the the value of that being the case is so that we don't have miscommunications, so that we all kind of understand a shared sense of, you know, ways to do business with each other um, and live our lives. 
And I totally, on a conceptual basis, I understand why it could be the case that one plus one doesn't have to equal two, but it keeps us from blowing each other's heads off when we're negotiating the prices of different, uh, you know, sub uh, objects in, you know, a pawn shop. Like that's how the the world is ordered. Um, and they talk about that a little bit in the movie when it's the the fake anecdote about explorers coming to Australia and assigning the, the kangaroo, the, the word, <laughs> yeah, the word kangaroo to the hopping creature with the pouch. They're like, what is that? And the Aborigines are like, kangaroo. And so they started calling the thing a kangaroo. But then it turns out that was their word for, uh, I don't understand. <laughs> Which I thought was really funny because Amy Adams, when she acknowledges that she says it's it's not true to Jeremy Renner's character, um, he sa- she says, it's not true, but it proves my point. Which was, I think there was a kind of a backlash to this movie originally when it came out. It was minor. I mean, a lot of people really enjoyed it. But the, the idea that language constructs reality and informs the way you experience the world is a sort of dumbed-down version of the Saper-Whorf hypothesis or sort of the linguistic determinism. And the what they call the strong version of that hypothesis is that your language helps you per- determines the way you perceive the world. Whereas the weak version, which is, I think, generally more accepted today and is hard to ignore the, the strengths of it, is that uh, is linguistic relativity, which is that language can influence the way you see the world, but it is not definitive. Um, but you could easily say the same thing about the message of this film. It's like, well, this isn't necessarily true the way that, you know, her learning the heptapod language allows her to completely change her perception of time and it being nonlinear. But it is true what the metaphor for this is about, going back to what Alyssa said, which is about um, perceiving the world and how we use language to negotiate meaning and come to fruitful ends in that way. Yeah, and I, I think part of what you mentioned there, kind of going back to the determinism thing, is I, I had to delve into, of course, Sam Harris's writings on the whole subject because you know he's popular these days and people like to talk about him for whatever reason. And and his like one of the ways that I thought he described our construct for free will pretty effectively was he was like, you know, you go to a restaurant and we think we have free will because we look at a menu and we pick an item off of that menu. I chose that thing. And he's like, that is true. But like what you're talking about is when you read one of those old books and it's like, choose your adventure and it gives you options A, B, and C. It doesn't give you an option to write in the next chapter of the story. You have to pick from something. So there's only a certain set of options available to you. And our options are are, our choices, or I'm sorry, our connections in life, the people that we know, the neighborhoods that we grow up in, um, or it can also be the language and the words that we have available to us to describe the things that we want or the dreams that we have. If we don't have the language to describe a certain thing or a word for a certain thing we'd like to do, then our choices are limited and we don't have, quote unquote, free will. And that's that's been kind of like what's been racking my brain lately about this whole subject is I was like, oh my God, like what if language is really, really stinking limiting to what we can even think? Or what we can see or, you know, one example I often talk about with my students is that certain cultures develop very specific words for very specific emotions um, that don't even exist in, the, you know, so my favorite one is um, there's a, I can't remember the exact uh, people group, but there's a language that developed a word for the feeling you have when your neighbor borrows each of your possessions one by one until you have no more left. And the, 
that but beyond being a delightful idea <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> of, of an emotion to experience that's so specific that you have to develop a word for it um it's just something i can't i can't even conceive of having that emotion um and a lot of it does i think have to do with you know having having a word for it and if that word exists in your language system and in your community then it's available to you or sometimes i talk about you know, if you talk to someone who is like a fashion designer or a painter, they have many more words to describe colors. And in some kind of a sense, they actually see those colors as distinct in the way that your average person probably doesn't. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think a lot of that is linked to what's going on in this story. But it's also using that to explore like a big philosophical question that I think everyone grapples with, which is if I knew that I was going to experience pain, would I choose it? And movies like to do this as well. Eternal sunshine of the spotless mind being a, a clear one. Um, but you know, that big question, like, why do we, uh, we actually, you know, if you fall in love with someone <laughs> and you're like, I want to spend the rest of my life with you, you kind of know that in almost every case it, it ends, you know, <laughs> in a bad way, <laughs> somebody's going to die or leave. And, and we know this, this is, the, you know, if you have a child, you know that this will not be a perfect life that they're going to have, but yet we choose to do it. So we're exploring that impulse in a, in a, uh, you know, an even more exaggerated way that just kind of plays into something we all experience. Alyssa, when you were describing what you talked to your students about with with language and sort of projecting more complicated thoughts into uh, an expression, do you think that this is the case for why memes are actually good? <laughs> oh, <laughs> the case yeah, for memes. honestly. <laughs> I mean, memes and, and emoji, too, I think, in a sense, you know, there's there's some really good work on this being done in the linguistics world. Um Gretchen, Gretchen McCulloch's book, Because Internet is Full of Really Fascinating Stuff on This. And yeah, I mean, that's exactly what memes do. And it helps show us that like, I can look at a meme, and you can look at a meme, and we may get slightly different ideas of what's happening here, <laughs> based on who, who we spend time around on the internet. But, um, or, you know, or like a I guess, in a broad sense, you know, these repeating kind of metaphor jokes that appear or, um, you know, you, you adopt the rhythm of a funny tweet in order to tweet. And sometimes you just, you see it and you know, this is a joke, but you don't know what the joke is about. You just know it's supposed to be funny. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I think all those ways of, of conversing with one another, they're, they've always been here and they're going to continue to be here and they're just going to continue to evolve. And that's fun and rich. And it also drives people crazy. <laughs> Another kind of interesting part of the movie that we haven't really touched on yet is like, there's obviously the larger discussion of free will going on and determinism and um, the element of like us perceiving our reality and using our language to inf or inform us or inform others. And to me, the visual elements, like the visual aesthetic of this film is very like spot on in, in the case. And I think it actually, it does... It does like feed into like the larger discussion and the the bigger life questions that the film is uh, the film is trying to answer or at least speak to. And um, I was trying to lead, read a little bit more up on it, but it's like in the very beginning of the film we see like her um her in her classroom or we see her at home and it's like very dark and it's um wide frame 
Um, and there's a lot of other visual elements that kind of speak to this idea that's like gloomy, right? Or that she um, is that she's small. Yeah, right? exactly. Small in the in the in the wider frame. She's always kind of just taking up like a quadrant. Yeah, and I think I think these visual elements, and you guys are welcome to jump in here, kind of add an like an even additional layer to the the meta meta discussion that's going on in the film because not only are we are we trying to consume this uh this film in a way that we're like learning about free will and we're trying to see like the language that these heptapods use and we're trying to like see how they conceive of time like in the in the larger sense um but the visual elements i think really add to like the aesthetic and i don't i don't think this film won an award for uh it won one oscar but i don't think it was for visual elements now i'm gonna have to go back and look that up but um that whole the whole like aesthetic of the film and it's that way the entire time and a lot of things on on screen come up like circular or oval shape partially just because of this idea of like time being being circular rather than linear um but i i really appreciated all of those elements throughout the film that just kind of like added little you know an extra oomph to the meta discussion of the film I think it's a a good best practice to yield uh, to actual film critics like Alyssa. For yeah. These kinds of questions. <laughs> I, no. I, the only thing I will I will put in because I I usually don't have much to say about this kind of stuff is I was just thinking about when they first enter the ship and they're going up the hallway, you know, at a, at a you know a funny angle like they're upside down, and they're going towards the white light, and you it's silent until you see the white light, and mm-hmm. then it's like boom, boom, yeah. <laughs> Really, really scary, big sounds. And it just made me think of like, I don't know, the ways that we're scared of the things that are in front of us, humans and their aversion to really thinking about the future. It's like every time they're walking towards the white light, it's like, oh my God, this is scary. Um, And this whole movie is about like understanding and being at peace with what is in the future. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm just looking now, and it it was nominated for a lot of Oscars, but the one it won was sound editing, yeah. which has since been collapsed into the sound mixing category. So it's just sound now, which is which is probably better. <laughs> um, but I, I had kind of I'm glad that's what it. I'm glad that's among the things it actually you know earned because I um I had forgotten how incredible the sound is. It, you know, it's been a long time since I saw it in a theater. Um, and my se- my system at home is decent, <laughs> but it's not like going to a theater. Um, but I think what you're pointing at is that the film is trying to make us feel dislocated, just slightly dislocated, and everything's a little uncanny. Um, again, like, you know, encountering the aliens for these people is not just like, Oh, these are beings from another planet and they speak a different language from us. They're like, they're existing outside of time and space and gravity and all kinds of things that, that are the rules for human existence, no matter where on the planet you live. Um, And so I think the film does a really good job of dislocating us from that. And I think the sound editing again is a really, a really great way that that happens. There's this, um, if I'm remembering correctly, there's almost a vacuum sort of silence to it. Um, when they kind of encounter the, the aliens, there's these kind of odd moments where, um, you're hearing something that sounds wrong to you and you don't even know why it's because everything that we live has a sound to it that we're, that we're sort of used to. 
Um, and that's one thing I just love about film. And again, another thing you can't really do in a short story is giving people that actual experience to freak them out rather than just describing it to them. Alyssa, what is the the trend in movies of this kind of genre where the soundtrack is kind of, of what we're describing here, where it's just incredible silence and then like deafening warbling sounds where it's like, <laughs> it's like somebody like yeah. on, it's like Trent Reznor just like yes. falls onto the synthesizer and hits all of the keys mm-hmm. at once. And it sounds haunting and horrible and like a haunting, uh, but in your ears. And I yes. feel like this is a trend that has picked up in the past couple of years because I see a lot yes. of it. It is, uh, I think of it as the Christopher Nolan thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, although, this, this movie is particularly much better mixed than a lot of Christopher Nolan yes. movies, oh, though. <laughs> it was very, oh. very true. <laughs> um, but I think, um, actually, I have my best theory about this is that um, home entertainment sound systems, and in particular, headphones that people watch on, have become much better um, over the you know, the past 15 years or so. And so there's a lot of stuff you can do in sound that is able to be picked up, um, <laughs> both whether you're in the theater or you're at home. Um, but I, you know, I, it, it also pops up in other places. I, I don't know if y'all saw uh, The Sound of Metal, um, but which was nominated this past year for an Oscar, but it really effectively uses sound, again, to tell the story and not just freak you out, which I think sometimes is what's happening with Nolan's movies. Um, but yeah, I think of that as like the, the Hans Zimmer score influence, <laughs> where it's like, it's not just rumbling in your gut, but it's like, it's, it's clashing the inside of your head. Um, David Fincher likes to do this too. It's not, yeah. not just Nolan. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because score was actually one of the things that this movie was not nominated for. They did the thing that they did to Birdman, which is that, except it was specifically for one song. There was a Max Richter composition that had apparently had been featured prominently in Shutter Island. I didn't remember this because I, I didn't, I think I saw Shutter Island one time and I was like, it's fine. Um, but it, it's featured in this movie as well. And they were like, well, because of that, the score isn't completely completely original so we're not going to consider it but you know which they did with birdman because there were all these classical music cues that were really diegetic so they they hadn't considered it part of the score but um the the rest of it was so it's yes. interesting because the music is really beautiful but it it was really not considered to be its own thing which i personally would disagree with it but. is it's a bummer because it's johan johansson who's since passed away um, much too young but uh he's he was such a virtuosic um composer he worked with villeneuve all the way through i guess the blade runner uh 2049 score and then that ended up going in a different direction but um but he died a few years ago and it was it was very sad. He was so great. But the um the Max Richter track that's in here, which I believe is called On the Nature of Daylight, I have always thought of as the saddest song in the yeah. world. <laughs> it is really sad. <laughs> it was in seven movies that year. Yeah. <laughs> I, and it's just I once actually jumped down a rabbit hole trying to figure out what about it as a piece of music just communicates incredible sadness. Um, but maybe it just is part of the mystery that the whole movie is involved in. In How do we communicate and even when we can't describe why we're responding in a particular way to something? 
You know, we've we've been giving a lot of a lot of praise to the movie, and I and I, I loved it first time watching it and watching it more recently. Um, but kind of one thing now that I think about it that like stuck out to me that was like a little bit, you know, odd um, is the the Banks Donnelly romance. I don't. I guess. I guess I didn't really usually in films I'm used to seeing like there be like a real buildup of chemistry and like it being very predictable. And maybe that's just because I watch bad, bad, bad romance films. But I guess I didn't. It's not that I couldn't I didn't predict that he was going to be the father, but I guess I didn't really see them really build that relationship throughout the film. Did anyone else get that feel like that was like there wasn't a buildup of chemistry or really like a like a moment where they're really fostering I a like relationship. That. It seemed more of like an abrupt yeah. type thing. I I just, I like that they were in this experience together as professionals right. and experiencing something huge and magnificent and they were focused on it and we were not subjected to really like catty flirting between the two for the course of the movie. That would yeah. have been, <laughs> that would have been really aggravating. And so I, I just like that they like stayed focused and did their thing. And then when they got to the end of it and we're watching the ship take off in the distance, then we get the really corny line about how like, Oh, I always thought, you know, the, uh, nothing would ever surprise me in the universe, but then there was you. I, <laughs> Like that, that felt like if you were going to do it, that was an appropriate place to do so. Um, but I, I think relationships, um, they, they don't always just like combust or, or ignite, you know, in that one moment. So I like that this was their introduction to one another and maybe they start dating here in the, uh, the weeks after the movie. That's, that's good. <laughs> it is also, I will say a very Villeneuve take on this. I, as I love all of his movies or most of them, I'm not a big fan of, uh, of prisoners, but, um, but I think he, I, I think of him often as sort of the, the world's least humor, uh, the most humorless <laughs> major Hollywood director, <laughs> which there's a lot of, uh, competition for that title. Um, but you know, uh, he is incredibly skilled and makes these really emotional movies, but there's not a lot of emotions I often recognize as like kind of human in them and this is probably the most human um so not surprising to me <laughs> yeah the one human moment that i really enjoyed that i got a good chuckle out of that is like this great little like tiny bit of thing that you could sort of read into the relationship between the two of them is and and i don't remember when they introduced this i might have missed it but i caught it when uh, amy adams character is like in the ship by herself talking to the heptapod um towards the very end and is sort of like getting the the last bit of knowledge from them and like going completely into it is that she's like where is it's abbott where is costello and i forget that they name the two heptapods abbott and costello oh, yeah. as this like goofy <laughs> pair yep. between the two of them and I, I can just imagine like them sitting down at some point and being like we've been introducing ourselves what are what what do we call them? Like, I don't know, <laughs> Abbott and Costello. Like, and I just thought that like that's a really human, cute, um, like flash. Yeah, like with in terms of things that I just didn't quite understand throughout the course of the movie. In terms of narrative, was when the bomb went off inside the ship. Was that the result of rogue soldiers putting that in there? Because because I, I I remember we were get, looking at the news and they were showing like some Alex Jones like talk radio guy. Um, you know, blathering on about how the government response was bad and how we needed to show up, you know, show force or whatever. And then it cut away to two soldiers in the barracks kind of looking at each other and listening to this kind of like, hmm, that's an idea. And then there was a bomb in there. And it, I had no idea 
who did it or why, but it wasn't it wasn't the military elites, right? It was it was just sort of random. Well, it was soldiers. I, I you know I think it's like one okay. of those. It wasn't an order, though. No, it's like a destructive uh, fear response, I guess, on okay. their their part. Um, yeah, yeah, and it's even you. I think you even wrote this down. Like that throughout the film, there's like kind of a confusing like background going on. Like we're getting like weird news snippets from like Venezuela or like ATF bands, and then there's like protests in Washington, and I guess some of that stuff didn't tie-in as well as I guess they probably hoped it would. Um, And I I thought, I mean, yes, it adds like some more context to the movie that like, you know, the world's freaking out because there's, there's aliens. Whereas like, I mean, technically we found aliens. (laughs) Technically we acknowledge that UFOs exist recently and no one freaked out, (laughs) but um, well, they haven't made landfall yet. So (laughs) yeah, we'll wait for them. To make, make land suspend your suspender and yeah, we'll call I mean, Amy I think, Adams. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, if I remember correctly, the the mass kind of world response is panic, but the panic is working its way out differently in different. Kind. Yeah, you could you could really watch. But this does also have the hallmark of being a um, movie where several scenes were deleted. Yeah. <laughs> so I wouldn't be surprised if there was more of that at some point. I'm one of those people who, whether it's this movie, like a Marvel movie or whatever, I love seeing the things that are happening on the television in the background and seeing how news media in these fictions are covering stuff. Um, so I, I did, I did love some of the inclusions of one, the ATF banning new gun licenses from being sold during the midst mm-hmm. of this crisis, like fat chance. Like <laughs> that, that, I mean, gosh, talk about like something that like you could stop with an injunction so quickly. Um, that's a kind of a frightening idea. Um, but I, I didn't view that as particularly realistic. And also I was kind of wondering, so the Dow tanks 2000 points in this crisis. And I was actually wondering, you know, with all the disaster porn that goes on on Wall Street, I almost imagine like stocks might go up. <laughs> I, feel like it, I feel like it always does the opposite of what you expect it's going to do. Uh, mm-hmm. But I, I do love seeing some of those things going on around the world and uh, watching the radio pundits talk about the uh, the government response as a total failure and how they obviously know better because, boy, howdy, do we live in that world. And now for the time in the show where we get to share all of the other things that we've been enjoying with our time at home. This is Locked In. So, Alyssa and Stephen, what else have you been enjoying? Do you have any other suggestions for our audience that they might enjoy? Books, movies, TV, games, whatever. Um, so I feel like I have been watching movies at home nonstop for a year and a half because I have since my <laughs> job. Um, so I have just genuinely been so happy to finally go back into theaters and go to press screenings, which means some of what I've seen is just stuff everyone will will see soon. But, you know, In the Heights uh, was definitely I the best of them. Wait but there was also... Super fun. Really excited for people to see it. Um, you know, I actually really liked A Quiet Place, too. And I think not just because I was seeing it in a the theater. Um, but other than that, and I actually just wrote about this. I've I've I have returned to watching baseball <laughs> um, like on the television. And uh, a lot of it has to do with, I think, um, there is narrative in baseball and there's an arc and all of that stuff, but it's not done by writers. Um, and I've just kind of really appreciated that. 
not, you know, having a, a relatively non-manipulated experience, or at least it's manipulated only by rules we all agree upon or somebody agreed upon. Um, but other than that, I've just been doing a lot of reading um, and reading is is something that I haven't always gotten the time to do. I just finished Christine Smallwood's novel, The Life of the Mind, last night, which is sort of a uh, cynical and satirical but short novel about an adjunct English professor who's kind of going through it. And it's all inside of her head uh, or it's not all inside of her head, but we're inside of her head. Um, and I just thought it was really well and smartly constructed. I believe that just came out this year. So yeah, that's, that's been pretty great. Other than that, I feel like I'm, I'm constantly playing catch up. Um, oh, you know what? I'll say one more thing. My favorite TV show at the moment is mythic quest on Apple TV plus. Huh. And if, um, anybody has gotten Apple to watch, I don't know, Ted Lasso or something, then <laughs> float on over and watch Mythic Quest. It's, it's a workplace comedy set in a video game development company, and you definitely don't need to play or be interested in video games to enjoy it. Um, I don't do either of those things, but my husband who does also enjoys it. Um, but it was, it was created by some of the guys from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, but it has a very different cast to it and uh and it ha every season they have a couple of really standout episodes it was the the only show that managed to make a good lockdown episode last year so mythic quest super fun very much recommend i and my wife are just finishing up our second watching of the sons of anarchy on fx this was a show that ran i don't know like 10 years ago, six years ago, I think it finished in 2014. Um, so we're just finishing up season six of that show right now. And we are absolutely loving rewatching it. So this is the show of a, um, the story of a Northern California biker gang, uh, running guns and dabbling in drugs and prostitution in Northern California and all of their really messy interactions with law enforcement. Uh, Mexican biker gangs, uh, the Aryan Nation, and all sorts of other mess in California. Uh, it stars Charlie Hunnam, and it is and Ron Perlman, and it is just really, really good. I, there's there are moments where the show like kind of devolves into being a cartoon of itself, but at its heart is a really, really cool Shakespearean story. It's a biker spin on Hamlet, um, and it also just it also is just a time capsule of a different time in American media where the conversation on crime, policing, and very much race was very different. Um, the way that we talked about race and crime in 2013-14 has nothing, <laughs> is not like we do now. And it's it's just fun to go and rewatch that again and see it in a different light. Um, and I do highly recommend it. It is... Um, it is deep and layered, and it can also be incredibly trashy and fun at times. Um, and I highly uh, would like y'all to watch it. I'm also finishing up a book, which I just wanted to plug real quick. I am reading The Lives of the Stoics, The Art of Living from Zeno to Marcus Aurelius. I just picked this up a week ago by Ryan Holiday. And I always wanted to learn about Stoicism because conservatives can never stop talking about it as if everybody should should know what this is. And I'm like... Uh, I was just tired of having people throw Marcus Aurelius quotes at me as if they are that important and relevant. Um, so I am reading this book now to get on the same page so that I can actually duke it out. And uh, it's been a lot of fun. You should read that too. For me, I, I actually just watched, me and my housemates just watched A Quiet Place, the 
the first one. Um, and that was actually the first time I watched it since I saw it in theaters. Completely different viewing experience watching it in your living room. Um, not quite as good. So I, I, we were all watching it in order to prepare to go see the second one in, in, in the actual theater. Uh, so I have high, high expectations there. And then the other show I've been watching recently, um, is the boys on Amazon prime. Um, it's like, a it's super it's uh let's call it generally about superheroes but it's like kind of a spoof um i've been enjoying it so far again it was a a recommendation from from one of my friends but it's uh one of those shows that like is good to have on in the background and it's like easily uh easily bingeable and watchable um i'd also like to point out that and landry knows this i am a huge survivor fan and survivor is finally coming back (laughs) um at the end of the summer so i can't wait can't wait for that to for that to get going again because of covid they couldn't they obviously like, couldn't film to film in uh foreign locations but they survivor is coming back so be ready for all my survivor hot takes i recently said goodbye to a series that i uh lovingly watch every week and it's not a tv show it is a twitch stream Uh, I've talked about it before on the show. I'm a big fan of Critical Role, which is a Dungeons & Dragons campaign where a bunch of voice actors that you might have heard from anime or video games or other things um, play Dungeons & Dragons. And they have been playing the same campaign for three years, and they play for three to four hours every single week. Um, And so I've been watching these characters for three years every single week, and they've gone off and saved the world and done all this stuff. And they finally released their final episode of this campaign uh, last week as of this recording, which is bittersweet because I love watching it every day, but it was great. And uh, they're going to do more as far as I'm aware. So uh, if you have a lot of time on your hands and like Dungeons and Dragons and want to get into it, I'm sure you've probably heard of it already at this point. But if you're just even curious might as well dip in you don't have to watch all four hours at once that's kind of what intimidates most people um but they're a lot of fun and the cast has great chemistry and you'll kind of fall in love with the the people as much as the story that they tell so you might be interested or you might be like that's too much for me and that's fine too i also had a a long drive recently to visit uh some family and i wanted to play some music and listen to that. So I rediscovered a couple albums that I really, really like um, that are good, uh, relaxing, fun road trip albums. One is Country Sleep by Nightbeds and Casey and Clayton and Marlon Williams. Um, so really, really beautiful folk uh, Americana songs. For instance, uh, if just to get started, you should try and listen to Plastic Bouquet, which is sort of like a, it's it's like a classic murder ballad um, that is specifically about like roadside memorials, uh, and they call them Plastic Bouquets, and it's all these stories about people that have these plastic bouquets left for them, and uses that to explore the sort of tragic stories um, with great harmonies and melodies and stuff. So, yeah. Casey and Clayton and Marlon Williams. Thanks for listening. As always, the best way to get more Pop and Lock content is to follow us on Twitter. You can find us at the handle at Pop and Lock Pod. That's Pop, the letter N, Lock with an E like the philosopher, Pod. Make sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen as well. We look forward to unraveling your favorite show or movie next time. 
Pop and Lock is produced by me, Landry Ayers, and is co-hosted by Natalie Dowzicki. We're a project of libertarianism.org. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org. <laughs>